Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And I'm Esther Ikoro, And we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry at dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. Hey, Ginger. <laughs> hey, Esther. How's it going? It's going great. We are on a roll right now. We have been talking to some amazing entrepreneurs. Yes. Specifically women. Oh, it's been awesome. You Although know, we do have one man coming up soon. We do. We do. After the women have paved the way. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Am I joking? Have, no, I'm you're not. not. We're always paving the way. Yeah. Speaking of the way, I, I really want to understand, because we're sitting with an amazing women right now, how do women entrepreneurs in corporate settings stay standing in those shoes. What is happening? I mean, the, like, the high heels. We, we have to be... <laughs> that's one of the seven wonders it is of the important world. important to push through it. That's, that's, that's one of the seven through. wonders. Yeah, that's it. You got to push through the pain. The pain. Someone's yeah. going to push through something, yeah. I feel like. I told you I broke my toe and I'm wow. still wearing them, so... What? Yeah. When did you break the your toe? The toe is just in it there It has not around. healed wow. like eight months ago. Wow. And it, it's, was it broken because of the high heels? I don't know. I don't know what happened. It just started hurting. And yet, and yet. And the doctor was like, this is broken. <laughs> I guess these things don't heal. Toes don't heal quickly. And then I found out that I was like vitamin D deficient. So it just makes it worse. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, the. Just didn't the, have the time to. The pain and suffering that you know, women <laughs> entrepreneurs go through to, to look like, beautiful. Walk a mile in these shoes. Yeah. And powerful. Like, I'm, I'm good, These actually. boots were made for walking. That's it's a famous just song. what they do. <laughs> it is. You know that lyric? Uh, I'm shocked. Jessica Simpson covered it. Oh, that's the only reason. That's just it. Really, really sad. is. Oh my yeah. god. Um, Disney <laughs> Not Channel. Nancy what Sinatra? up? Okay, uh, people. Francilia Wilkins Rahim is the CEO and founder of RF Wilkins Consultants, a development and management consulting firm dedicated to leveraging project management to drive the success of the nation's business. Founded in 2011, wow, the firm manages a diverse portfolio of public and private sector projects. Francilia, 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 Hi. welcome. Thank you, thank you. I'm excited to be here. I, well, we're excited to have you. If and I could have one of those horns, it's like, burr, 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 burr. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I mean, you know, the thing that we're excited about is that we're actually broadcasting right now from New York City. Yeah, we are in New York. I forgot to mention that. And there's a beautiful view behind us. Like we of see course, the Hudson yeah. and then a whole bunch of equipment. What's the Marine <laughs> and Aviation Pier 57? It's just Pier 57. That might just be the name of it. Yeah. 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 I don't know what goes on over there. This is the best piece for us because... I've been admiring you for at least, you know, almost a year, I feel like I at this point. I appreciate that. I admire you. I think you're fabulous. Thank you. Aww. Thank I really you. Do. Um, 
But I really want to understand, you know, this is, we always have these conversations on our podcast and we have to know more about your company, you know, what your company does really, truly does. And how did you build this company? You know, what is your entrepreneurship journey? But before that, um, talk a little bit about RF Wilkins Consultants. So it's interesting because people always are like, well, what do you do? It's like that thing. And my husband says I'm the Olivia Pope of business development. That's like his <laughs> line. That's, he tells people this in real life. Um, so our Focus Consultants, we're a business development and management consulting firm. So it's like, well, what does that really mean? Um, we help companies, nonprofit organizations, for-profit entities, government entities with their development and expansion processes. So we bring their bottom line goals to fruition and we do it through project management. We raise money. We've raised close to $900 million for projects throughout the state. We help with fundraising and capital sourcing. We do compliance work um, and stakeholder engagement. And it's really just items needed to bring any project to fruition. So bring it alive. You know, when a company is in their most difficult place and they think something can't happen or the government is or whatever, we bring those projects to fruition and we become the face of it. Um, and we just make it come alive. That's what we do. So you're telling me when a co- when a company, I was going to say country, which probably soon to <laughs> it come, could be right? A country. It could be a yeah. country. We, we do company. it for cities. Wow. We do it for cities. So, so when they're like, we, we've got this great thing that we want to do that's on the horizon, but we don't have enough money and we don't know if we're going to be able to pull it off. You come in with that bag of yours, you put it down on the table and you just start running things. <laughs> yeah, right? we, we make it work. We figure it out for them. That's exactly what we do. Um, there's a lot of problems that companies and government and everybody has when it comes to like bringing any project to fruition. And the projects are really systematic the problems are really Mm -hmm. systematic sometimes. It's really just like not having enough internal capacity, not understanding how to break up something like the little puzzle pieces and put it back together or just having difficulty doing it. Mm -hmm. They might need somebody to come in or a company to come in and look at something from a completely different perspective. Um, And that's what we do. And then we're able to like map it all out. Is this your first company? So it is. It is. I have been doing development stuff since I was like a kid in high school, my I went to classical high school, Rhode Island, whoop, whoop, Providence. Um, but so in high school, I was like the head of like the black student organization called Brotherhood. And we raised, we had a fundraiser and raised like, I don't know, maybe like 2000 or something like that. But the amount was like the largest amount that a student organization had raised in like the history of the school. The school was formed in the 1800s. Wow. So like I was always into just kind of projects and project management and raising money. That has always been my thing. So technically that could have been my first business, but our Fulkins Consultants is my real true first company, um, first business. Um, and it's been a labor of love to say the least. So um, your first company, what were you doing before? I mean, how did you get to this place of having your own company? Because I, I, almost, I almost feel like we ask this, we ask the same question all the time to everyone that comes on because understanding how number one, a woman decides to become an entrepreneur is always interesting to hear. But when you're a black woman starting a business, it's a whole nother level of everything. So, you know, this is your first company. How did you get here? What happened? It just happened. Something changed. It just happened. Um, I know, the right? The recession happened. That's oh, what happened. The recession okay. happened. That's what happened to me. Um, so I, you know, I, I always, I started the company at age 23. 
Um, I started at age 23. And at that time, I had worked with a few different companies, Fortune 500. So I had worked with MetLife and Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company, and I'd worked with Thomson Reuters um, in different types of roles, some internships, some, you know, um, a bunch of different roles and capacities. And were you freelance? No, I wasn't freelance. I was so like you working were, directly with okay, the companies. Okay, so you, yeah. you were an employee yeah. before you opened of your these company. Companies. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. Okay. But I was still young. I was still in college working. Um, and so when I finished my grad, when I finished grad school, when I finished my MBA, I was like, oh, like everything's going to be great. I thought I graduated cum laude. I had done all of these, like worked with these high level companies. And I'm like, I'm in here. Like I'm going to get a job. And I remember while in school, while in college, I was trying to figure out like what I really wanted to do. And I Googled consultant and I tried to figure out what consultants did. Um, and I said, I think this is something I could do, right? So I started figuring out like, well, what um, major would you need to have to, to be a consultant? And so all I knew when I was graduating college was I would be with one of the top consulting firms. That was like the plan. When I finished my grad school, when I finished my MBA, it was like the middle of the recession. And so I remember applying to literally like 200 different jobs. Like I applied, I applied everywhere. And from those 200 jobs, I heard back from like none of them, literally none of them. And I was like, damn, what am I doing wrong here? Like what is, what is wrong? And so that's when I started the company. And at that time it wasn't the company. It was just independent consultant for Encilia Wilkins, not the Rahim. I wasn't married at that time. Right. And so I remember telling like a friend of mine, like, yeah, I'm an independent business development consultant straight, <laughs> straight off of Google. Like, With a the, smile. The, the language, like I'm an independent. And so he called me one day and he was like, you're an independent business development consultant, right? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, my father needs one of those. He, he needed to, he literally had, was an ex-offender. He just got out of prison and he wanted to develop a re-entry program, re-entry nonprofit um, for ex-offenders. And so he was like, yeah, we need one of those. And I was like, I could do that, right? I could develop this. And so that's where it started. From there, I developed, I worked with this nonprofit organization to help them build a re-entry pr program for physically disabled ex-offenders. And then it became a word of mouth thing. So they told another nonprofit that was looking to raise money. They had homeless shelters and they had been around for like 30 years. They wanted to raise more money and access more homeless shelters. Worked with them. And we won a contract. It was a $10 million contract that they thought they were not going to win. Okay, wait. $10 million? Yeah. Help me. Help me understand that. Yeah. It was... It's, it was to provide homeless shelter services wow. in New York. And I just, the crazy thing about that, I always joke, there was a commissioner at the agency at that time, DHS of the city, who when he saw me and he was like, oh, you're writing the proposal for them? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I've met people like you before. I've met like women like you before. You're not going to get it. They're not wow. going to get it. He straight out said well, that. You know what? I pause. Okay. Yeah, I know. I'm that, like, I, I, this is where I come out clapping. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and so I was just like, Oh really? Women you know like I mean? you like, now it's on. Right. I love that so one. He, it was just, he just said it. So like, kind of like, you know, not mm -hmm. even, I don't even think he was intentionally trying to be any kind of way. Just rolls he off and I the are tongue. great friends now though. I'm going to tell you. So after I won this bid, he came back and he said, this was the best submission we saw. Wow, like, really? And he was so impressed. And okay. he said, I'm going to take you out to lunch. Mm. So he took me out to lunch. 
And he was just like, you did an excellent job. And I said, remember when you told me? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so he has been not only a friend, but an advocate um, since that time. Got you. And so, so that's... What I what I what I like about this is that he was honest with you and and he said was. what was on his mind because yeah. there's a lot of people that won't actually say it but they'll undercut you and you know do things to to actually help you lose yeah so you know he was telling you I appreciated how he felt. that yeah. yeah I did because mm-hmm. you know what it did right and and I think that this happens all throughout like my career now it puts this battery in you that Mm -hmm. makes you say, I'm going to go harder than I even thought I was going to go. It's not enough what I'm doing. And so I want to do more and be more. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that narrative that it's not enough narrative isn't something I would say to continue to like kind of let ruminate in your brain or anything. But what I would say is that him saying that, that doubt helped me to go beyond. It helped me to do additional research to figure out, well, how do you write a great proposal? It helped me to like really figure out the agency and how it worked to FOIL request different I documents. I love it. It's like all of yeah. these things. So. I mean, I think that it reminds me when when I came out of, of college and I, I remember, you know, and I, and I went to brand school. I mean, I learned, you know, how to um, create, do develop creative strategies and create brands and things like that. And I remember putting together a resume and my resume, I was like, I'm not going to put a regular old resume with just copy on an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. I put this, you know, a lot of effort and time into creating this beautiful work of art. And I will never forget when I sent it out, um, you know, nobody, nobody responded to this resume. Mm. And there's a, there's multitude of reasons why one of them was that it was impossible to read. Of course, you couldn't read what the hell was like you cut you all these letters out of a magazine. You couldn't. You couldn't read. You couldn't. You couldn't. You couldn't. You couldn't read the res. You couldn't. I mean, you couldn't read the resume. Um, but I, I got a phone call. I got one phone call, and it was it was a guy, and he's actually a legend in the creative space in Chicago and in the United States. Um, and he started yelling at me about how horrible this resume was. He said, "What is this garbage?" This is the worst thing I've ever seen ah! in my life. I, I can't read it. I don't know what you do. Who are you? Don't ever send me anything like this ever again. And at first I was sitting there like, wow, that was just rude, rude, rude. And, and, I, was, and I was hurt and upset. And I thought I put so much love and care into it. But it actually made me think. And I looked and I thought, you know, he's actually right. This is just not going to work. And so I redid my resume and I, I made it readable, number one. Um, but I highlighted um, more about you know, my successes in yeah. college and I got a ton of calls and I got a job. Yeah. So right? that, that's what it does. I mean, that's what, that's what that's that kind what of does. feedback does. And, yeah. and if you can take, you know, that kind of feedback and turn it into a win, that's really important. And my, my follow-up question to that was really, this was actually a man that you were having this conversation with. Do you still have a business relationship where he supports you and gives you ideas and kind of helps you interpret and understand the differences so, between absolutely you know, men so and he's women no in longer with the agency anymore but he is still around and alive and kicking and like i'll call him sometimes like this is going on what do you think or and he just he pours he has referred clients like he has poured into my career so he what he was an advocate. He he became he was initially someone who was like, You ain't never gonna do it, girl. And then became this kind of like advocate that was like, Look, I, I support you, I support your work, I support what you're doing, and I'm gonna refer people to you and kind of like help you direct your 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 business and your structure. So yeah. 
So I get to observe different business people, mm-hmm. specifically women doing business at a high level. And no offense to small towns, it's easy to be a consultant in a small town, depending on who you are. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a big city where everybody graduates at the top of their class and everybody has a multitude of connections, it's not that easy to kind of rise to the top and get the contract. Something that we've talked about, Ginger and I, are is um, when it comes to black women doing business, even having access to someone to say, this oh, is yeah. not at the level that it needs to be at. You would never, if he hadn't said that to you and oh, had, ex- you wouldn't have, you would just been like, I didn't get the contract. Yeah. But knowing him more now, did that come from really seeing work so, that was not up yeah. to standard? I definitely think so. Right. So I think that, and I'm going to, this is a two part thing. I think that as women, as minorities, right? And we all know this is true. It's no longer like top secret because there's all these MWB and inclusionary programs created to like prevent this. But I think that as women, as minorities, we have such high levels of talent, right? But you don't know what you don't know. So you don't know what your competition looks like. You don't know what your, like what the world and space that you operate looks like unless you know. And you're never going to even have the access or ability to know if you don't have access to see, right? And if you can see, then you can replicate. And if you can see, then you can know how to do it better. Um, Some people have like mentors um, or they have, you know, people who support them in a specific industry who can be like, don't do this this way, do this this way and shift. A lot of us don't. Um, There might be, there's so many reasons for that. Everything from just like access, just having access to being secure enough to be insecure with somebody else, right? To sharing like these are my faults and these are my weaknesses to just like the bunch of different like discriminatory things that are in place that help keep us down. There's so many things. But because we don't have that just base access, we we struggle. It's harder for us to get to the top. It's harder for us to get access. It's harder for us to know what even exists. And like I said, I started off as an independent consultant. Now we are, you know, we have full-time staff, we have project-based staff, but it took so much learning. I had to learn the hard way. I had to learn by myself. I didn't have enough people saying, don't do stuff that way, or you should look at this. But the few people who did, the few people who poured in me, I will always remember them. One and two, it's because of them that we are where we are today. So so when it comes to your insecurity, because that's a really interesting word. When we talk about mentors and the importance of mentors, we actually have an episode on our podcast about mentorship specifically, because I think it's really important as well. Vulnerability is really important. Um, but yet as black women doing business, we have to have a lot of confidence because people are always doubting us. Yeah. How have you been able to allow yourself to become vulnerable in teachable moments, but then have the discernment to know when someone is not trying to teach you in a positive way, but is trying to be like, you should really try something else? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, hmm. So I'll start with the vulnerable moments. I think that one of the most vulnerable moments I've ever experienced was actually not it was not too long ago. It was like 2015 or 2016. And I'm not going to get into the whole story because it still burns. It burns. But whatever well, I happened. I love the burning. Oh, you want we, the burn? We want to hear the burn. Oh Absolutely. Oh, my God. It's, it's oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, 
right. Okay. 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 I mean, we will so, not name any names. Yes. Okay. I won't name any names. But be, the long story short is that I had been working on a pretty large contract in New York City. Um, and I was working on that contract for two different clients, and um, which they both knew we were working on it. Like we, you know, did pre-disclaimers and everything to say, hey, look, we have two clients here. Are you sure you want us to submit for both of you? They were like, yes, we do. Okay, cool. So one of the clients were, I don't even want to say the agency because then people will know yeah, what I'm talking about. Yeah, don't say the agency. Yeah. So I one mean, we're of not going to blow people up on the Honest Field Guy yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just so can't do that. So one of the clients were, <laughs> when I say the agency, I mean the city agency that this was under, right? But one of the clients were already doing this specific project with the agency, the other client was not, but wanted to. So we were under assumption, just from feedback from the agency initially, that they did not have to submit into the bid process, that the client that already had the project didn't have to submit. So last minute, like probably about a week before, I just so happened to be speaking to a representative in the agency. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm submitting for these guys. Should I also submit for these guys? And they were like, yeah, submit. And I'm like, okay. So in my head, I'm thinking like, oh my God, oh my God, this is a 300 page bid. Mm -hmm. Trying to put this together in a week is like difficult, right? But it is what it is. So I try to put it together. Um, long story short, got it all together and something happened with the printing and we submitted the second bid like after hours. So the re- one of the reasons why was because this agency had a catastrophe the same day the bid was due and they needed me to show up to handle the catastrophe they were having. It doesn't matter what the reason was. The result was that about 250 people who we had hired to do the work for the company who was already doing it all got laid off from the company. Ouch. Yeah. And even though there were so many different factors in this, I owned that in my whole entire heart and soul. I was so sad Mm -hmm. because these people when we had to tell them they were leaving the agency, we managed to help most of them transition into the company that did win, one of the companies that did win. But they were so hurt. They did not want to leave my client because they were like, we've worked with all these other agencies. They're horrible to us. You, the client treated them with respect and dignity. We paid them well because I made sure that, you know. And so I sat with these people. They cried with me. I cried with them. It was such a sad thing. But that was the burn. Right. That was an instant where I felt like I'm not enough, even though we won for the other client. Right. And it was amazing proposal and all that stuff. I felt like I wasn't enough. I felt like, what am I doing with this company? Like, I felt like, look at how many people's lives I just impacted. Um, Like, that's their money. Like, that's their life. That's their. It's not like these were high income people. Um, I just remember going home and I was dating my now husband And I was so sad. And I had tried a bunch of things afterwards, like try to talk to the agency. We pulled in all the elected officials, called all these politicians, like this is what happened. Like, you know, and none of it worked. None of it worked. None of it worked. And Mm. I just remember sitting in the bathtub for like three hours. I was just like a dead person. You were devastated. I was devastated. And I've never felt that down in my whole entire life. Yeah. And my my boyfriend at the time, he comes to my apartment and he sees me sitting in this bathtub and he picks me up and he puts me in the bed 
And I just stayed there. And I just remember feeling like I was sinking into the bed. And I was like, this is what people call depression. Like, yeah. This is what it feels like. And then the next morning, I had to sit on a panel and talk about like being a business owner. And I got up 8 o'clock a.m. and just sat on the panel. And I mean, you get up. Yeah, it just you had to get got done. up. Like, you just had, had to get Something switched in your brain and you're just like, bing, good no- morning. Nothing <laughs> switched. It. I was just, it. I think one of the things as a business owner that you have to learn is that you have to continue going. No matter how hard it is, no matter how hurt you feel, And I think the reason for me starting this business, and I'll tell you guys what it is, is the thing that keeps me going. Because the reason is beyond me. It's above me. It's above anything that can ever even be at my level. It's so above me. Um, And so that reason allows me to keep going. Even in that time when I was literally to date the lowest low of my entire life, that experience, I just knew that the next day I had to keep just just keep going. And I think one of the um, things that excites me about talking with you is um, when, you know, African-American business owners, we have a um, you know, legacy of working in the government sector mm-hmm. with our businesses. And earlier you said, you know, that, you know, something terrible happened. And I feel like a lot of us are in that space and mm-hmm. we're not getting the results. And mm-hmm. somehow you're finding opportunities to get results, um, not only in the contract space, but you're able to overcome that kind of adversity. Because when you're doing government work, you are dealing with a lot more human lives than if mm-hmm. you're dealing with, you know, private sector work, which yeah. isn't, doesn't have the same type of impact because yeah. you're working in communities. Can you talk a little bit about um, your ability to have success? Because in the government space, I feel like you do nonprofit and government work. Mm-hmm. Um, you work with a lot of community organizations, community groups, and like you said earlier, government officials too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have a lot of um, honest conversations around what's required and what's important and what has impact and what doesn't have impact and, you know, you've this, this incredible expertise. Um, how are you able to make this work? Because a lot of the conversation now is that, you know, some of us are too reliant on government contracts, mm. you know, because they're not always, they don't always work out. You don't yeah. always get the, get the bids or get the money. So what, what's been your secret? Diversify. Your secret diversify, diversify right. So okay. you diversify client types. I don't only have government clients. I don't only have nonprofit. Mm-hmm. I have private sector clients too, whether they're small businesses or larger companies. We learn, I think at that point when I had the worst experience ever, I learned that I need to diversify. Um, the goal was I want to expand this company. I want to build the staff. I need to, I need to diversify. The other thing I learned was that I need to invest in people. And I was still at that point. I had one other staff at that point. And I was like, I don't have enough money to get more staff. But I realized like if I had more support, this situation wouldn't have gone down like this. You know what I mean? And so diversify and make sure you build the capacity. And it's a weird thing to do when you don't have any money. Right. So with the government sector, I came into the sector not knowing anybody. You need to kind of know people and, you know, but because I didn't know anything, anybody or anything, I'll say either, I was still learning, I, 
I got really, really good at writing proposals. That was the first thing, right? That was the first in. Not too many people can really write um, and submit these like huge government bids. And so I got really, really, really good at that. Um, And I think that was the entry into kind of like now navigating this space and growing a larger company. There wasn't too much competition. And in New York, there's a lot of contracts and bids that are out there, right? And we had this reputation of now winning. Um, And because we play in the government space, a lot of these bids are bigger, right? So the first thing is diversify. Um, The second thing is build the capacity. I had to do different and unique things to get people on my team. I think people were initially motivated by the story and I would motivate them around like, this is why I'm even doing this work. I wanted to create a company, a legacy that could be the legacy of my family, of those hardworking people who were able to really grow and build and succeed and thrive and have children who have all gone to multiple colleges and universities and are all kind of successful and thriving. Um, And then I wanted to leverage that as a tool to shift the economics of us minority people because I see how all throughout my life I've seen how we have less opportunity. We are thought of as less. We are given less access. We have access to less resources. And I realized that the only way to shift that is to own the businesses. And so I started off saying, I want this to be a Fortune 100 firm. Like, you know what I mean? And I know that's like this huge lofty goal, but that was the goal. How can I create a company that can hire people, give jobs to people, make people who look like me feel like they were wanted needed. Um, their expertise was respected. Um, and so that was the goal of the company. So how have we been successful in the government space is leveraging that kind of will, that need to continue going no matter what, to figure it out, to make mistakes and learn from the mistakes, um, to, to research. I've done a lot of research and I make my staff now research everything because I, love I truly research. believe that everything is online. Like there's nothing you can't find online. Um, and so that's how I learned the space, became really good at this one thing. And when companies see that you can raise money, when you're like, oh, I raised 10 million, oh, 20 million, 30 million, then they want you to do that for them. And then when you do that for them successfully, they're like, oh, can you manage this project or manage that? Can you make this happen? So I think it's just really getting good at that one thing showing folk that you can do it and excel with it, and then using and leveraging that one thing to build trust um, with your clients. And then from there, when a client trusts you, the, the gates open and referrals open. We built initially just like through word of mouth. Like, Yeah, and it. that was actually something I, I did want to ask you about because um, I think that the government space is really tough. It does require extraordinary networking. And you mentioned word of mouth. Um, people heard about your wins. They understand your successes. Um, how is that? How have you been able to manage that conversation, though? I mean, how are people finding out? Are they just? Is it? Is it literally? You have a success, and then one person spreads it and tells twenty people, or are you? You know, are you putting out information, or what are you doing so that people know you're having success? Because I struggle with that with my own company. You know, with trying to figure out. You know, should I put? Every single thing I've won out there on the street. Yeah, you know? so it's so crazy. I'll do it for you. You'll yeah. do it for me. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> it's so funny. Michelle Obama said this in her book. She was saying how, like, we as black women, especially, we don't um, highlight ourselves and the stuff that we do. Even when we started this, you were like, I don't see as much online presence. And I'm like, I know, that's what I struggle with, right? So it was really all word of mouth. Um, 
we got really good. Even though New York is a big city, um, people talk. It's like the same people in these uh. industries, the same people circulate in government, um, in the private sector, the same people circulate. So people began talking like, wait, what? You did what? Hold on, wait, what? As soon as they hear the numbers, they're like, oh, okay, well, if you could do that, you could do something for me. Um, so it did really become a word of mouth situation. To this day, I still haven't, and now we have some huge contracts and we have all the staff and we, I still haven't really marketed the company yet. I haven't marketed like my story or like that's the next step. I think that's definitely your next step. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I remember about your story um, was some of the money that you did raise, which is almost a billion dollars. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm like, how did you get yeah. to almost raise a billion know. dollars for other people? And did that also make you figure out, you know what? I'm doing this for other people. I need to do it for myself. I mean, was that did that play into your decision to open your own company at all, or did anybody encourage you to do that? I mean, how? Because talk talk I about thought, that money you raised. Yeah, I thought we were operating. I thought I was operating as a company already, but I had no idea that I really wasn't. Like, well, I was technically, but I wasn't incorporated. I didn't do all of the the stuff I was supposed to do structurally initially. Um, so the goal was always, well, if I can't work with these consulting companies, then I'm going to be these consulting companies. That was always the goal. So the goal was always to start uh, the company. I think that it really, the whole structure and everything, to answer your question, came organically, right? Okay. We ra- we won this first win. People started talking about it. And you won it for someone else. Uh, yeah, we won it for another client. And then I realized at that point with the money question that I was charging that client like $35 an hour. I did the 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 contract, you know, had the client, they got a win, we won $10 million. And I looked back and I was like, I charged them $35 an hour. Like, so they have the $10 million and I had like $1,000 if, if even that, right? And so I still didn't learn, but you know, I, I felt like just being really frank, it's not like that happened and I was like, oh, now I learn and I'm going to charge more. No, it happened and I said, I'm still not good enough yet to charge more. Mm-hmm. I need to raise more money, right? I didn't think that was enough. It was just one win I didn't realize. And so I increased what I charged them, but maybe it was, I think, like increased to like $1,000 a month, like a monthly retainer of $1,000. Did somebody so help you know. figure this out? I mean, No one helped me figure it out. I went online. I tried to figure out like, okay, well, what do other folk charge and what am I charging? My The work that I was doing was very different and to this day is still very different than any other company I have seen. Because not only were we writing grants and researching and all, companies do that, but we were managing the project. We were becoming the face of the client. We were advocating for the client. We were helping them scale their companies, right? We were hands-on and to date continue, whether it's a government agency or private client or nonprofit, hands-on in the process of like, I'm, we're helping you scale your business. So I went online and I couldn't find any other companies doing this, right? So it's like, then what do you charge? The companies that were doing anything similar were like the Deloitte's of the world. Yes, and I, was just gonna say, I was just going to say They were the larger Deloitte. scale consulting yep, just firm. Just going to say that. I was just a girl. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I was just like a young 23-year-old, like, 
thinking that I knew how to do this. And yes, successes were coming, but it's not like it all came at one time. And I was like, oh, I'm so great at this. So no, I did not learn after that first 10 million how to charge structurally. And that company got a deal. Yeah. And they kept getting (laughs) deals for like a good long time. Esther, they're still a a client today. They're still a client today. They're still your client. Well, so, well, okay. But now now it's a different conversation. But that's that's like, the fact, I mean, this is what I love about you because like, (laughs) You turn these like incredibly like what annoying. I define as annoying. Well, I define as horrific situations. Okay, I love your words. Infuriating. I mean, and you turn them into like gems and beautiful things. I, I love, love that this about client you, because to this day, like oh they because they have supported me. Okay, they were yeah. the company that took the risk when no other company did, right? When I couldn't find a job, they took the risk that I could... This was... If they had lost this grant, it would have crumbled a huge arm of their business, right? They took the risk on this 23-year-old and they took the risk on me, right? Yeah, they could have told me, like, you should charge us a little more. Actually, a few years ago... Did you hear that, client? They could have been, right? They... (laughs) Shade, yeah, I heard shade. No, no, I love them. I love this client. I love them today. But you know, they could have been like at that time. But a few years ago, actually, when I decided to raise the rates, which didn't happen, I didn't really fully raise my rates to where they are today until probably about four or five years ago. We've been in business now almost like nine years. Congratulations. Yeah, and so I didn't raise the rates at the rate that they should. We're about to do another raise, people. Just letting y'all know. Um, but we didn't raise them at the rates until one client said to me after another client, I didn't learn my lesson now. I kept charging cheap, cheap rates. And I'm not going to say what race they were, but a different race client said to me um, after we won them like $30 million and they kept coming back for more and coming back for more. And I said, no more. Like we now have to charge this rate. The client said, you finally understand your worth. That's what? what he said to me. Oh, I mean, he said okay. you finally. They, he said, and then he joked on it. He was like, he laughed at the other colleague, his other colleague, when I was giving them the rate, and he said she finally understands. But I mean, word. I mean, okay, me playing devil's advocate. I, I'm trying to. Okay, I'm trying to take a deep breath around this conversation yeah. because all I can think to myself is, you know, if you're in a collaborative relationship and you're having extraordinary success, why were they waiting for you? to understand your worth instead of them helping you understand, you know what, you deserve more than this. You are killing it for us. I mean, I've had clients do that for me. I've, mm-hmm. I've had a client kick my bid back and say, you are not charging enough. Mm-hmm. You have to jump this up. And the reason she said this to me, and this, you know, this is a woman client mm-hmm. that I will always remember forever because she gave me one of my first chances, mm-hmm. you know, when I opened my company, she said, I can't put your bid against the next bid because it will look terrible and you you are way you're actually way better than this other company and I want you to stand up and look as amazing as they are and I was like I I thought to myself wow I loved her for that yeah now I had that I had that client you know for a couple years and I learned a lot from it I didn't keep that client for a multitude of reasons it wasn't necessarily the perfect fit but you know, I mean, she told me what to do why didn't they tell you? Not everyone does that there was one client yeah um that told me, really, literally sat me down for dinner after I did a bid for her and was like, no. And that one client today, I'm actually in her office. Like, I her own, she owns many yeah. buildings, and my office is actually in her building. 
But um, I think it was like 2014 or something. I did a proposal for her and I charged her like $7,000 to write this bid. We did it. And it's that sounds like a lot, but it's not in the space. Like, See, you to just do said, a wait, you just said that sounds like a lot. You're still kind of wondering. Because no, some people Depends say that, listening. right? Some people will hear that $7,000 oh, okay. and think that that's a lot of money. It's not. Not it's at not. all. People charge thirty dollars to $50,000 to do the type of work that we're doing. It's literally like writing books. You know what we need to do? Um, I mean, just... You know, no one Esther, has an honest Esther, conversation about this, and there's no, no one talks about money. No one talks about money because no one but wants that's where people you get to finessed. know like, how much are you are you yeah. making. I talk about money. I you want to know why people will say like, oh, a lot or a little. That doesn't count as anything until I hear real numbers. I don't know what a lot is. I don't know what a little is. Like I need to hear real numbers. No one has that conversation right. to date. No one has that conversation. So anyway, this one client, she told me. Um, she basically said to me, I put together a bid for her. She was that same guy who I told you in the beginning was like, you're never going to do it. He was the one who referred her to me. And she sat me after I did the proposal. She sat me down for lunch and she said, I'm going to tell you right now, when you told me what you were charging, I thought that you wouldn't know how to do this. She said that when I, the only reason we trusted you to do it is because this person referred us to you. Mm. She said, you do not charge enough. Never again charge anyone that much. She said, I did a proposal like this before. They were nothing compared to what you did. What you did was nothing. You, what you did was way beyond what that person produced for me. And they charged me $30,000 for crap. And we paid it. She's like, your thing was like a million times that, right? I mean, so, so Francilia, though... I. The thing that's really interesting to me is I'm listening to this conversation because I, you know, I have an agency to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and do a tremendous amount of, you know, scoping of work and yeah. pr- creating lots of proposals. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds also like you have clients that understand what they're buying mm-hmm. and they understand uh, the value of your service because they're in the space to know. I mean, I find that some of the work that we do at Burke Creative mm-hmm. Um, you know, people don't know how to buy creative services or creative strategy, mm-hmm. you know, and that was something that um, um, I wanted to actually talk to you about, mm-hmm. you know, because when you're doing this government work, how are you finding the right clients, you know, to do the work for? Because when you look at these bids, you've got to be looking and saying, um, or you look at the relationship, you can say, this is a good fit because they're going to understand the scope and the project and what's required to do it. Yeah. Right. I mean, because it's... It, I think you're describing this 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 special process. You yeah. have these conversations. You have trust relationships. You're coming in on referrals. Um, you know, you're 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 having people tell you truth. You're listening really well. Mm-hmm. You're reading between the lines and, and interpreting, and you're winning. Yeah. And this is this is a mag- I mean, I feel like this is a magical process that most of us are not are not nailing as it well is. as you are. It is. I think, and I'm going to say diversify again. Now we play more in the project management space than okay. the grant writing space. So let's just even start there, right? Um, project management is easier to quantify because you it's it's just easier. You're doing a specific project with specific tasks. Grant writing is not easy to quantify. A lot of people have this idea that, okay, well, if we don't win, then we shouldn't be paying, right? No, I just spent the last 200 hours submitting writing a book for you. Like whether you win or not, you got to pay for this book writing. And so now we there are some clients who don't understand that concept. And so because of that, we put we still do a lot of the writing, um, but we do less of that and we do more project management now um, because we've won a lot of money for some of these existing clients and now they want the project to be managed. So that's one. Um, 
you, I think that we cannot expect anyone to tell us to understand our worth. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to say to understand. We can't tell anyone, we can't expect anyone to tell us our worth. We can't expect that. There's a privileged few that will tell us our worth, right? And those those gems, when you get that, you want to hold on to them, listen to them, keep them. Um, but then on the other hand, we have to research. We have to look up public information. We have to figure out what other people are charging. We have to do, there's a FOIL request in the government space. If you don't know what FOIL is, Freedom of Information. Um, and you can request different bids and what people have submitted. Like we just have to learn those things. And that is how we can quantify our work in that space. Um, even now, today, after all these wins, I have some agencies, government agencies that will come to me. Because I'm a minority firm and they have the MWB program and they have special smaller allocations for MWBE, they'll want me to do the world for them. And they'll be like, oh, we'll pay you like $20,000, I'm like, do you see my resume at this oh point? Like, gosh. you know what I mean? And there's been times when I'm like, we don't want to do it. And see, like, this, is, this is and this is why, you know. Um, some of us are trapped in this space. Yeah. So do you feel like that's an inter- that's a really interesting point that you just made? Because I have the question of whether or not playing in that MWBE space hurts us or helps us. Interesting. Because interesting. oftentimes we don't want people to, we don't Box have to go in. through the black door. Yeah. Oftentimes that's our only shot at the table, but it yeah. also puts us in a vulnerable position because it's like, here's your slot. Right? Yeah, it does. And it here's does how that. much money is for your It does slot. that. And then they try to kind of play games sometimes. I have experienced that with agencies where they try to play games when you're in that slot. Um, so it's a yes and no. Um, yes, I think that the MWB initiatives are important because at least they give you a seat at the table. Kind of, sort of. Because they don't necessarily uh, work that clear. A lot of people are still not getting the Depends on the city seats. you're in. Yeah, that's true. It depends on the city. That's true. And the relationships. It all depends on relationships, right? You, I, My thing was I didn't have relationships at first. I got really good and then kind of built up that respect and relationships. Like, no one can say at this point, you can't do what we can. Mm -hmm. Like, no, we can do because we kill it. Like, we just kill it, right? But, so yes, the MWBE program, I actually never leveraged it until probably two, three, four years ago, Mm -hmm. right? We weren't going in through MWBE. We are just going in through Merit. Um, But now that we're in the program, there's times that they've like, oh, yeah, we have put $100,000 for a 30-year build-out of something, and here's your $100,000. And we're like, no, that doesn't work. But because it's MWB, they're stuck under that budget. Like, the the city or the agency can't give you a bigger budget. Um, So on one hand, that has hurt. But on the other hand, you get access to things that you you get in the door. And when folks see you in the door, then it's on you to create that conversation and relationship internally to say, okay, well, we gave you a discount and now moving forward, it needs to look like this. Well, so every, I think everyone, like a, everyone still doesn't want in the space for so yeah. I think that you are a special case and I feel that, um, you know, definitely I would love to hire you <laughs> <laughs> for your 15 or $20,000, you know, you know, proposal writing relationship handshaken, you know, um, you know, vibe that you've got going because it's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, Esther and I talk about this a lot. You yeah. know, the fact that in Chicago, for example, there's a ton of bids out there right now looking for um, MBEs and WBEs. And, you know, if you are a paper manufacturer or if you're, you know, manufacturing medical specimen bags, yeah. you know, these are commodities, yeah. you know, and you're not even dealing in commodities. You're dealing yeah. in a lot of, like you said, project management and creative strategy. But yeah. I mean, Esther, your work also has a dollar sign attached to it. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say from the outside looking in is, Number one, the MWBE thing really in the way that it's, you, 
it's been positioned in your work is a strategic leveraging point Mm -hmm. after the social proof has been created. Yeah. Right. So you muscled your way into the social proof by saying, we raised $10 million, $30 million. Like that's, that's a a number that's undeniable. And people are going to see that and be like, that number doesn't lie. So clearly you know what you're doing. And I also think, and I and I have to say, I have been an advocate for MWBE. We do a lot of work with the city and state around just building their MWBE programs. Um, I think that sometimes these programs are not built to allow a company to grow. And that's what, and for companies that do grow, the pro- programs sometimes kick them out. So like in the city here with like the key agencies, HFA, Housing Finance Agency and EDC and all of these different agencies, I've been working, my firm has been working with them to say, this is how you need to tweak your MWB program and structure to really have access, allow companies to grow within the structure and not just kind of sit and like rot um, getting $20,000 contracts forever, right? Um, yeah, $20,000 contracts. Is not is not like wealth developing. Yeah, no. I mean, I think about in Chicago, for example. There's a major construction company, yeah, um, that started off with really tiny contracts, but yeah. because of their um, ability to get to the doors that are very accessible for them um, as a good old boy network, they're now a billion, multi billion dollar company. Yeah, you know, working on global contracts, yeah. and so that's sort of the space when I say, um, you know, some black and other you know, businesses run by people of color that are in the government sector, I have yet to see um, enough of us um, scale up so that we have generational wealth based on yeah. public sector contracts. And it, and this is this is something that I feel that you are on track to do. Yeah. And more people need to understand um, by listening to you, help them and guide them through a process like this, how they can be like this. Yeah. Because it, it does take, not only um, are you educating the government side to say, you need to be communicating differently, writing bids differently. You need to be more trained in our space yeah. as entrepreneurs and small business owners. And then also the people on the outside need to understand how they can become more accessible and how they can leverage Google at search yeah. to figure out how to build something. Yeah. I mean, that's another space that I'm, I heard. You mentioned that so many times. Yeah, how many times I you do. went online to search. Yeah, so you, you want to learn. And I think that's the other piece that's missing, just taking responsibility for what we have to do. Mm-hmm. We have to learn more. We've got to do more searching. so important to diversify. So if I were to give three points right now, one, diversify. Don't just play in one space. If I only played in government space, I would be dead. My company would not exist right now. And that's just being 100% frank. Mm. Um, So you have to diversify and make sure you're touching different spaces because revenue might trickle from um, different contracts in different ways. Learn how to charge people, right? If I if I did, if that wasn't clear before, you know, I learned now that we don't just do kind of one-off things often. Like, if you're hiring us, you're hiring us like you're hiring our law firm on retainer. So every month you're paying us monthly because the services that we provide are not one-off. Even if we're doing a one-off proposal, there's a we're not just writing. The reason why we win is because we do advocacy, all different types of things in the background to get to a win. It's never just write and win. You're never going to win that way, right? So now we say, no, if you're a client, like you have to be on a monthly retainer because we're putting in a million hours and a bunch of different strategies to let you win. So that's another thing. We put everybody on a retainer. We take a percentage of a win at this point. Um, so if we win something, now it becomes revenue in the future.
when we first started this conversation, you said that you just said you're a business consultant, right? And your friend was like, you said you were this, right? Were you scared at that point? Are you still scared? You're always scared. I'm always scared. Um, But being scared or not being 100% confident, it helps me. Um, It makes me go harder and harder. It makes me look at things that I'm doing and try to look at what I'm doing wrong um, and how to make it right. It makes me... um, it allows me to mess up and be okay. It allows me to allow my staff to mess up and be okay. Um, I think that, you know, I've had to build a team now. And, like, in order to have a successful team, they have to be confident. And so going through that myself, going through kind of all of the heartaches of failure, many, many times, like many times we've messed up, um, allows me to kind of um, – it just allows me to continue growing Um, and understand that I'm not perfect. My company isn't perfect. We're a growing company. Um, And we just got to, you know, keep working at it. Where do you go for rejuvenation, balance? Ginger talked about walking around the desert. (laughs) I walked it. Yeah, I did. I get facials and sit in the sauna and cry on my own personal time. I don't need to, I don't need to be in the sauna to cry. Okay, I know. No, I'm joking. I'm <laughs> I do not. I can, cry, I can cry at wet. Right, right now. Tell me to cry now. I'll make cry. it happen. Cry. I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> like, do it. I'm an entrepreneur. How do, you, how do you keep your battery charged? This is emotionally taxing. You're talking about putting in 200 hours writing books, basically, as proposals, um, dealing with all of that stuff. How do you stay motivated, hungry, and then on top of that, keep your company growing Going. and making strides? That's a good question. Mental, like really mentally, because this is a mental game yeah, above all else. We're talking about emotionally strapped entrepreneurs. It's yeah. a mental game. First, I want to say that I don't think I realized that there was a need to pour back into myself for a long time. I didn't go anywhere. I would work 3 a.m. to 3 a.m., like no sleep constantly. Like that was just my life. I think the thing that helped balance that was really my husband. Um, My husband, shout out to Hakeem Rahim. You know, the first person that I've ever dated that was diagnosed with a mental health um, issue, a concern disorder, diagnosed with bipolar in college. And um, he's now this huge advocate around this. But He is the most balanced human being in the world that I know ever. And he does all of these things to keep himself like just good. Like he yogas and he does like retreats and all this stuff. And I was over here just like slaving, like nonstop, not caring for my body. I started getting sick. I started like, I ran into this situation where I had like precancer cells in my uterus. I had issues with my ovaries. I had um, a cyst and fibroids and all of these things at one time. And I think that made me realize like you need to disconnect a little bit. Uh, So what I do now is I like to read. He allowed me to start reading again. I don't really watch TV um, at all. I didn't own a TV actually until he proposed. Um, But uh, that's a different story. But um, so I, I like to read and he started getting me books from the library and he started like just finding books and I would come home to gifts and he'd be like, no, just read. Right. And I thought I couldn't do that anymore because I needed to work. Um, but he allowed me to start reading again. Um, I liked to paint when I was younger. And so he bought canvases um, in the house and he bought like, you know, the paint thing. And 
he set it up in the house and would be like, no, let's just disconnect and paint. Um, and we started painting portraits. Um, so I think he is really responsible for allowing me to disconnect. And the ways in which I do is like reading and painting. And I love to travel. Um, so travel was something I was doing before he was actually in the picture. Um, but that's the other way. I need to get out. I need to be somewhere hot and just like travel somewhere abroad and just like shut everything down. Um, and that's that's how I do it, you know. If you were talking to your younger self or a girl who's like, I don't feel like there's a place for me in corporate and I really want to do my own thing, but I want to do it big. What would you say? Like, what advice do you wish that you could go back in time and, and give yourself? Well, first I would tell myself, like, you're enough and you, and you can do it. And then next I would say, try to find a mentor sooner than later. Try to find an advocate sooner than later. That, that would be my advice. Francilia, what are some of the social traps that Black women fall into in business as entrepreneurs? The stuff that prevents us from establishing or growing our businesses? Money is mm. the first trap. Money. Um, just the way how we think about money. Um, I think we, we get in these situations where we think, like, if I had, I would. But I, it's like what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Um, because you think if I had more money, I would get more staff, but I need more staff to get more business. But if I had more money, I would get more staff. So you get caught in that. Um, I think as an entrepreneur, you need to go out on the limb and, and that fit, and we do it in many other ways. It's the hardest for us to go out on the limb fiscally. It's the hardest to say, I don't have the more money. I'm going to pull that person in any way and I'm going to get that money some way, somehow and make sure that person is paid or whatever, right? That's number one. Number two is we get caught in this. I have to do it myself. I have to do it because the other the person control. won't do it. The, the control. It's, that is because we have spent so much time building our reputation and trying to get something right. And the idea of somebody coming in and messing it up is like the scariest thing ever. Um, and so we're like, they're going to mess it up. And so I need to just do it myself. We will never grow as a business. We will never grow as entrepreneurs if we feel like we have to do everything ourselves. But you're also talking about taking chances and taking risks and realizing that, you know, there might be a little failure, but yeah. it's not the end of the world. I yeah. mean, risk taking yeah. is a big, big problem. Yeah. We got to, entrepreneurs take risk. I think as black women, we are, there's so many restraint, like constraints that we have that we get scared to take risk. The reason why, one of the reasons why white males do so great and is because they're like fearless. Like there's this kind of fearless, I can do whatever it's already meant to me, meant for me kind of thing. And we need to have more of that. Um, and I appreciate people who that have that because it teaches you that you, it teaches you that language. We need to learn the language of fearlessness. Yeah. The language of fearlessness. Yeah. Like we need to learn the That's language like of fearlessness. That's like a hashtag. That's yeah. what I think Should the, I the like hashtag of the show. write a book that could be yeah. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And like then um, one of the other things to, um, I feel like with um, a lot of women, but in particular, black women, um, we see a lot of celebrity success. And that celebrity success, um, whether it's events or entertainment, you know, great visuals. Um, but I want to I see more financial success. What is the conversation that needs to take place 
publicly and confidently to say, you know, it's one thing to look great. It's another thing to look great and make money at the same time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, The conversation is a real number-based conversation. We don't have that enough. We speak in kind of really lofty terms about, yeah, we made a lot of money. Or, yeah, this cost a lot of money. Or it's not that expensive. And those are relative terms. Like, Mm -hmm. we can't expect anyone to know what we're talking about. We can't shift um, how other women, other minority business people, um, how they even engage with money unless we start talking about real numbers. Like I really started and my bank account was negative $1,000. You know what I mean? Or I really, you know, paid this first staff this amount of money. This is how much I pay them for salary. I went without getting paid and I only paid myself this amount of money, less than the staff that I had. We need to talk real numbers. We need to have that real conversation. If we don't learn this thing we never we're gonna be playing like at the back for a very long time I think you've gotten a lot of visuals from your parents that have strengthened your resolve and some of us haven't had that visual I mean you explained it earlier Um, how has your perspective changed on entrepreneurship since you started your company you know what (laughs) I didn't this term entrepreneur I feel like this is a new age thing (laughs) <laughs> like, I was not using this thing before. And now everyone floats it around. And I'm like, yeah, mm, 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 mm. No, you're not. Mm, yeah. I don't know. I guess that's judgmental, right? But I feel like everyone uses this term now. Like, everyone's like, yeah, I sold a pen. I'm an entrepreneur. And I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, I'm not I hating. I'm not hating. I'm I not hating. I sold a pen. But, but it's just so much more. Sneak like, I, I don't really <laughs> say that I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a business owner. And that's the term I prefer to use because I'm cultivating people. You know, I have staff. I have projects that are responsible. Like there's this idea. It's not just me, the individual, which is that's the entrepreneur, the individual. This is beyond the the individual. It's beyond me. It's now about the staff and the team and the business and the structure. Um, So I... I just so you're you're just like look I'm not an entrepreneur I'm a businesswoman yeah I'm a businesswoman that's That's it it. yeah and so you know and I and that's a great lead into my next conversation so one of the other amazing things about your friend Celia is you are now officially a Google Digital Coach which Mm -hmm. is part of the Accelerate with Google program that Mm -hmm. was started in um, 2014 and launched as the Google Digital Coaches program in 2017. it's wonderful that you're one of these coaches. I am as well for mm-hmm. Google. So I manage the Chicago, Illinois area. You, of course, are one of the New York coaches. And mm-hmm. we just brought on another coach mm-hmm. um, managing Harlem. So talk a little bit about all the things you talked about today. And are you are you sharing this with your um, audience of people that come to the Google office to talk about um, how they can become just like Francilia? <laughs> Wilkins they'll be Raheem. just like themselves. Exactly. You got to wait, wait. Francilia Wilkins, Wilkins I mean, it's so crazy. So I love the Google Digital Coaches Initiative. I think that inspiration um, and beyond inspiration Inspiring is one thing, but I think giving people real tools and access is another. I think speaking this real talk where you're looking at real numbers and like, letting people be exposed to the real issues that you had is important. I think the Google Digital Coaches platforms allows me to do that for people who look like me, allows me to kind of give people answers to questions that they don't even know that they have. Um, and so the platform is amazing. We are in New York City and, you know, they Google Digital Coaches, like they grab small business owners through different cities, people who you know, represent their markets, but, you know, and grow, have growing companies. And I think our stories help 
um, motivate our the people in our markets, our audience. So I, yes, leverage it as a platform and try to speak about everything that, you know, I'm doing and going through now. Um, it's still, it's a and continuing your story. Out. Your events yeah, sell they, out. They I get, mean, it's NYC. I mean, know? my goodness. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I think We that try to have fun. We try to have fun. What I, what I love about you and your message and your story and even your delivery, it's, it's approachable, it's accessible. People can listen to you and say, I believe her. I want to be like her. She can she can teach me. I can learn. And I think that's an asset to yeah. Google in yeah. general, like yeah. Google Global. I mean, they need more women like you that are out there teaching other women how to be successful, and whether the audience- they're working internally or whether they're working externally with their own companies as an entrepreneur or a small business owner. Yeah. Right, Celia? yeah. The, um, and the audience is, they are a resource to me. Because the the audience motivates me. Um, we recently just won JFK redevelopment, thirteen billion dollar project. We just won the compliance. Can we contract. just do a wow. round of applause, Esther? Come on! I actually have champagne down here. <laughs> I mean, that well, is amazing. Congratulations! Thank you. And you know, just sharing that and the support, the overwhelming support from people I don't even know, you know, through Instagram and social media and Google Digital Coaches. And it has been amazing. It has been in the times when the contract gets hard or whatever, trying to figure things out, like they are the motivation. So I don't think... And so you're drawing on that. Yeah, I'm drawing off off of this. You know what I mean? I'm drawing off of like, yeah, their audience and we're pouring into them as a Google digital coach, but they are pouring into me and my company and my staff. Um, Esther. So I think it's a beautiful thing. Wow. I say that a lot. Yeah. I've been saying that a lot lately. <laughs> I know, but it's it's amazing. It's I mean, I feel out. like, you know, listening to Francilia talk about her journey and her experience and, and um, you know, winning these large-scale opportunities, um, her brightness, her vibrancy, and especially – her saying um, the collaborative experience of working with the Google Digital Coach audience um, really rejuvenates me. And um, I get excited because there's not a lot of companies out there doing the work that Google's doing. And, you know, Esther and I did an earlier podcast on supplier diversity and being an MBE, WBE, you know, does it really matter and how how you can get into places and not get into places. And I feel that um, through the coaches you know, Google can reach very far and expand in ways that um, I don't know that any other tech company is even yeah. tapping into this the way yeah. Google is. And they certainly haven't found us. No. Right. And the, I people, mean, no. the, the like the, the <laughs> level and the quality of the individual coaches, yeah. like as aspiring small business owners or people who already own a business or have owned their business for a long time and trying to go to the next level. When you look close enough, you're like, Wow, like this isn't just, hey, I'm going to show you how to run your Instagram. It's it's a different type of inspiration, mentorship, strategy, insight, perspective. Right. That I don't know where else you would get access to that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Esther, this has been amazing. Thank you so Francilia, much, Cilia. Thank you. I feel I'm, so I'm in awe. I want to. I could talk to Hashtag Francilia. Black Girl Magic. <laughs> exactly. But couldn't you just spend an entire Black excellence week? And other associated hashtags. Exactly. (laughs) Wow. Just on and on. 
I know that this conversation is going to reach far and wide. I'm excited for people to listen to this and learn from your amazing stories. And thank you so much for your candidness, your openness, your vulnerability, your honesty, because this is the Honest Field Guide podcast. I'm Esther Coro. And I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And we'll see you next time. The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago, at Stomping Ground Studios in Ukrainian Village. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Ikora. E.